Hello and welcome to Frankly Speaking with Lynn Franks and Friends. I am your host, Lynn Franks. And in this episode, I'm speaking to my good friend, bee queen, Paula Carnell. After all, this week is celebrating International Bee Day. And Paula is the bee expert. She's been on an incredible journey. She had a very successful career as an international artist and single mother of two young sons. And then she became very ill and bed-bound in a wheelchair for seven years. You're going to hear how she self-healed through meditation, natural herbs and minerals, together with her work, creating a whole new method of natural beekeeping, producing honey based on ancient global traditions, which can save our whole ecology system, as well as our health and well-being. Paula is an author, a honeymaker, a teacher, and creator of the now world-famous Byzantium at the Newton Somerset. So hello and welcome, Paula Carnell, to Frankly Speaking with Lynn Franks and Friends. I'm thrilled to have you here today. And we're doing this for World Bee Day on the 20th of May. So the timing is perfect. And I'm so pleased to have this opportunity to really talk to you at length about your story, because obviously we've we're friends and you live near me and we've got to know each other well. Uh, and I know your story to a degree, but I think going into it in a deep way for our listeners is going to be really rewarding because it's such a inspiring story and you're such an inspiring person. So welcome, oh, welcome. Bless you. Well, thank you so much. I'm really honoured to be part of, of, of your podcast um, and amongst such amazing guests that you've had. You know, I've really enjoyed hearing other people's, other women's stories, you know, it's, it's really inspiring. It is inspiring. And, um, and as nearly all of them have been friends of mine for so long, I just realized how blessed I am to have so many interesting, wonderful women in my life, actually, including you. So I always refer to you as the bee queen, uh, as opposed to the queen bee, just (laughs) because your work with bees has just been revolutionary and amazing and has had a global effect as well as a local effect, which is so good. But before we get to the, the story of the bees themselves and your work with the bees, I want to talk to you about your story because that in itself is so uh, extraordinary, really extraordinary. So you you started off, you went to art college, didn't you? Well, yeah. I mean, I'd always wanted to be an artist, you know, from a really, really young age. I mean, I used to do portraits of my babysitters and I sold my first painting age 13. I had my first exhibition at 16. So there was never any doubt that I was going to be an artist. So it wasn't something I had to fight to do. Everybody just said, well, you are the artist. So it wasn't a surprise that I, I went on to art school and then as soon as I finished art school, I actually set up my own business as an artist because I, and it's a core thing throughout my life is I've always believed we're all here for a purpose and we should inspire other people. And both with art and with beekeeping, they're both careers where you're not supposed to earn a living, let alone thrive doing. And I, because I always wanted to paint and I always wanted to have freedom it was really important to me that I became successful because how could I inspire other people to leave the jobs they hated and live their passion if I couldn't make it work? So that was something that was always important to me. And also, I suppose, to prove people wrong, you know, that I didn't have to have a proper job as well. You know, I could be an artist. So I was really lucky because I started so young. I was able to be supported by the Prince's Youth Business Trust. Is that different from the Prince's Trust? Is that, is that... Um, yes, I think when back in the early 1990s, they had divisions. I think they're all one now. But the Prince's Youth Business Trust was basically for anybody under 26 who was starting up a business. Um, and, you know, obviously Prince Charles has this real passion for crafts and arts. So it, it was amazing. It was such an incredible opportunity because you got to do trade fairs and exhibitions and you were cushioned, you were supported by their incredible machine. I met some amazing people and had some fabulous experiences and, and was really honoured that I, you know, I, I won a gold medal for my greeting cards, you know, so I, I produced cards for my paintings. And thanks to the trust, I mean, you had these great mentors who were, were teaching you about business and selling. Yes, I've worked with them myself and they do incredible. 
incredible work. And Prince Charles has done this incredible work with so many people I know for so many years. Oh, yes. Yeah. And, you know, I was, I was really inspired. I was lucky to meet him a few times and really impressed with his, his um, capability of remembering people. (laughs) (laughs) One of the arts of being a royal, I think. (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, he was incredible Um, or is incredible. I haven't met him recently. Um, So, so that was my foundation and I built up the business over 20 years. So I supplied my paintings and greeting cards to over 700 shops in the UK. Did you really? I didn't know that. I did not know that about you. Wow. Well, they, my business. You are an entrepreneur. There's no question about it. I've always felt I'm an entrepreneur and I've always associated with entrepreneurs and I exported to 11 countries. Um, and then I had my own gallery in Castle Carey and through the 90s and to the early 2000s. And I suppose as a woman, a key development in your life or developments are marriage and children. And I'd married very young, just a year after starting my business. And then after another year, my husband then joined the business. I taught him to paint. And then we had children. So I had two little boys. And then when they were one and three, my husband ran off with a shepherdess. <laughs> it has to be dramatic, doesn't it? it does. Well, it was, I had to find a way because I had a gallery. I was sort of in a goldfish bowl. And um, it's really, really interesting how as women, we protect everyone around us. And to protect my children, protect my staff, protect my business, I protected my ex-husband. And I would not blame him. I would. I took full responsibility I mean, I didn't know what he was up to and I had two days warning and he just left on a Friday afternoon. And so, and also because I was absolutely broken by it, completely broken. I thought he was the love of my life and I thought we'd be together forever. Nobody in my family had ever divorced. So I had, it wasn't on my radar. You know, I didn't really know anybody divorced and it was the biggest shock ever. Well, how did you blame yourself? You thought you were just too busy and didn't give him enough attention, that kind of story we tell ourselves. Yeah, I know. And I think having having young children, I realised that actually, I mean, everyone knew I was a businesswoman, everyone knew I was an artist, and they all giggled when I said, oh, yeah, the children will just come around with me. And then, of course, as soon as I had a child, it was like, I want to be a mum. And although I loved the art, I knew that the greater need was feeding my children, caring for them. And so I... Um, handed over the business to who I thought was an equal partner. However, he was not an entrepreneur. He was just a, a pure artist. So he even says to this day, I demasculinated him. And basically, any kind of mess ups he made with the business, I just dealt with. I just picked them up, dealt with them. I didn't rant and rave. I, I, you know, I was hurting his sight. And I thought, I obviously haven't trained him properly. I obviously haven't trained my staff properly. I obviously haven't done this. Why so do we thought, women take the blame? It's ridiculous. I know. It's because actually my whole theory, having been through this experience myself, is that we overwhelm them with our capabilities, which that's what makes them feel less than. And then they have to react in a way where they feel they're in control, i.e. perhaps having sex with another woman or whatever that may be. In some cases it can go as nasty as being violent. Um, and it's, it's not, it's, it's unjustified and there is no way we should be blaming ourselves. Of course, okay. life has proved wonderful for you because you're now with the best husband in the world. So. And I think, you know, we've all been through some horrific experiences in our lives that we can now laugh at. And, you know, running off with a shepherdess is a way of sort of coping with what was actually a a really devastating experience. And then it did end up being one of the best things that happened because I had some time as a single mum. He then left the shepherdess and went off to America. So my kids didn't have that every other weekend with another family. And so although it was tough being the mother and the father, you know, doing all the parenting, they had consistency. Yeah, they didn't have that split. I've seen it. No. And yeah, so that was wonderful. So I'm so yeah. proud of them. They're all grown up now and, you know, and they do go and see their father and, you know, it's it's all good. Um, but I did have five years as a single mum running a business and that's when I decided to sell the gallery and focus on my own career as an artist. So I had sort of six, seven years as an artist um, just on my own. I'd met my husband, Greg, who... You know, we've now been married about 16 years. And and I had, it, just before I was 40, I had the best exhibition of my life. I was in London in Cork Street. I managed to sell a painting for four, um, five figures, which was one of those goals. So I knew 
I'd made it. You know, I really was at the peak of my career. And then literally by the time I was 40, I was just after my 40th birthday, I was actually completely bed and wheelchair bound. Um, I say wheelchair bound in that I didn't want to miss my eldest son's sports day and sort of last year, last season at um, primary school. And so I was literally sort of put into a wheelchair and ferried to these things, which were just the most uncomfortable, most unbearable. So did you meet Greg before you got sick? Yes. Yeah, we've been married for about two years. Right. So we've known each other sort of three, four years. And then I got sick. And when I really collapsed, he was actually working away in Malaysia. So he had to come back. And again, that whole mum network, you know, all my my mum friends, the parents of my, my son's um, friends, they all just took care of me. You know, they had this meal rotor. They had the school run rotor. They were just looking after me. But I soon realised um, that I was seriously ill and it was going to be more than a few weeks. And that's really tough because for somebody who's always been so independent, to ask for help was really, really tough. And and with my condition, you'd have, I was blessed with always looking really well, but just having absolutely no energy and having a lot. And it's called, it was called, it's called Ella's. Danos, Ellis Danos, yeah, Ellis Danlos syndrome. But it was six years of being bedbound before I was diagnosed with that. So that that was a journey in itself. The doctors couldn't understand what was happening, and you did not have, you couldn't move. No, yeah. couldn't move. I had postural orthostatic tachycardia, which meant that the moment I was, you know, if I lifted my head up, if I sat upright, I would just, you know, I I just collapse. I was really dizzy, nauseous all the time, um, really really low blood pressure. Um, and it, yeah, it was, it was really difficult. And the problem with Western medicine is that it was my whole body. So there wasn't a department who could look after me. And although I'd been under a rheumatologist from about the age of 11 or 12, where I'd had sort of really serious joint pains, nobody picked up that it might be this Ellis. So this has gone back to childhood, but presumably the stress that you'd been living under in the Times when you were being a single mum and running the business must have added to it, I suppose. Yeah, I think I had sort of 12, 13 years without a holiday, you know, with one week's holiday and just being full on, which, you know, I loved. And I've, I've since, I've got a client who mentioned it. Um, oh, it's instead of having a, um, a sort of a nervous breakdown, you can have a passion breakdown where because you love what you do, you just work even harder. But you, you still need to rest. You still need to break. But, um, but that whole time when I was ill, I had carers and I'm lucky that I have a positive mindset. So what I did was I started to think about what I can do rather than what I can't. And the first few years, all I could do is meditate. So that's what I did. I just thought I've always wanted more time to meditate. So I'll just meditate. And one of the things I would do is visualize a walk that I loved, which was Ringstead Bay to Lulworth Cove along the Dorset coast. And I knew it would take two hours. And so I would just look at the clock and I'd shut my eyes and I would do that walk in my mind. I would do yoga. I've done yoga for 26 years before I was ill. And so I would go through a whole yoga class in my head. And so incredibly, I didn't lose as much weight I mean I did have some muscle loss but I did stay reasonably fit incredible so it's an absolutely absolute proof that we can through our mental and our spiritual practice create something that affects us physically I mean we know we can do that if we're feeling bad and then our body hurts but actually to be self-healing in a way by visualizing yourself walking visualizing yourself doing yoga is incredible and we don't do enough of it we should do more so during that period greg had sort of said oh what you know what would you like for your birthday and of course i couldn't have parties i always used to love having parties for birthdays and birthdays were a big deal and we couldn't go anywhere and i just had this calling to have a beehive so greg got me he built me a beehive and um we had it in the garden and the idea was i could you know, I could have a mentor who then put bees in and I could be wheeled out and sort of propped up by the beehive whenever he's working on it and, and be taught beekeeping. 
But even on that journey, I'd started to understand more about my health and well-being. And one of the things I picked up was that if I had any sugar, I felt nauseous and I had more flushes. I do wonder now if actually my condition was the menopause. Well, I'm just wondering that, yes. Or related to it, at least. Well, it did. It was the right time. So I either had a very easy menopause, but a dreadful Ellis Danlos, or I had a really dreadful menopause, which had this background of Ellis Danlos. And I suppose we'll never know. But I knew the toxicity of sugar. I knew how bad it was. So the first real alarm bell for me was after we'd harvested an, an amazing £140 worth of honey from my really car. One beehive. One beehive. Wow. I didn't know that that was any good. I mean, it is an extraordinary high amount of honey. And then the next time my mentor came, lovely, lovely chap. I mean, he'd been beekeeping for years. He's a really experienced beekeeper, but he's of that old school, that conventional beekeeping school. And he brought this big packet of white sugar fondant. And I was like, what's this for? And he said, we have to feed the bees. And I'm like, what do you mean? And he said, well, we've taken their honey. And it was just such a shock. And, you know, now I know I've learned so much more about bees, but I I have to remind myself that most of the population don't realise that bees make honey for themselves. And we could only take the surplus, not you know, the main harvest. So that so was they don't I, need sugar at all. They just will oh, live off their own goodness. honey, of course. Just like us. Yes. You know, and even when I'm speaking with beekeepers, and I, I don't know what you think of this analogy, I'm trying to think of something similar, but I suppose it's if you were in a starving famine situation and you had a baby that was, was you know, completely starving and the only choice was cocaine, would you give them cocaine or would you just let them pass away knowing they're going to die anyway. And I think that's the same with bees. For some reason, we all seem to think it's fine to give them this white processed sugar. Which is going to kill them anyway. It is. It is. And it it affects them in so many ways. So did and, you not give the sugar that first time round? Or, cause you well, had I, this, or you well, didn't I know any did. better at that point? I didn't but, know any better. But, but, but the, you thing, had this incredible amount of honey that you got, though, you were saying. Yes, was, yeah. So, I mean, I then started to give the honey back to the bees. And after that, I would never take a full harvest. I would just take what was what felt right. And I think that's the other thing about using your intuition. So my intuition had always been very strong as an artist. You know, I would suddenly feel I had to paint something or I felt I needed to exhibit somewhere or go and see something and so it was the same with the bees I felt how much um, honey I should take and I felt that I shouldn't be giving them sugar and I shouldn't be using chemicals and I shouldn't be using smoke but when you're being taught by an expert you feel a pressure to justify what you feel and I think this is that whole interesting shift which the bees have really highlighted to me between that the masculine energies and the well, feminine time. exactly right, yes. You know, and now feminine energy is all about intuition. You feel your baby is, is sad or happy or needs feeding or needs changing. And you feel things and you don't need to prove it. You just know it. And yet we've, we're going through this transition where so many of us have felt stuff and we've been pressurized to prove what we know. And this is where the gift of bees has been so good for me, running parallel with my own recovery at Ellis Danlos. Bees um, are very prominent in goddess culture. You always see bees in the pictures. And traditionally, and going back a long time, was it women that were the beekeepers predominantly? It's, it seems a very feminine uh, role in a way, combined with um, herbs. I mean, I'm going back, 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 really. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you go back to the Phoenicians and the Greeks and the Egyptians, then beekeeping wasn't so much a, a feminine activity, but the bees were revered as goddesses. So they would be, there would be temples for the gods and all the products from the hive would be really highly valued, sacred, you know, sacred honey, the propolis, the wax, everything was honoured and respected. And you would have feminine temples that would follow the path of pollen or follow the you know bee shamanism and so women have have been involved with bees but perhaps not so much on that 
you know, on the on the pollination, on the keeping the bees. Right. Um, well, perhaps but, that's the way know. it is, is the man and woman working together and uh, <laughs> showing the woman it's a queen bee, of course. Uh, well, and yes. the men are doing all the hard work. <laughs> no, that's not true. We do <laughs> yeah, or just work. doing... Just, uh, just doing the practical work that doesn't need the deep connections. Yes, the spiritual thought. connection. Yeah, yes. yeah. And it, like you said, that's why we need both. We need both energies. And what's happening now is in the last 15 years, more and more women are being called to beekeeping, but they're going to these training sessions run by the, the BBKA, which is a very conventional very masculine dominated industry you know big association and they're doing these courses where the course is not how to connect with your bees it's when do you put these chemicals on when do you clip the queen's wings when do you kill a queen when do you kill drone cells you know how much honey can you get how to get the most honey and so people finish those courses and they're heartbroken they're like beekeeping isn't what i thought it was i don't want to do it anymore and so lots of people coming to me and going, well, how come you do this? I said, well, I don't, you know, but I love, um, was it Alexander McQueen who said, you've got to know the rules to break the rules. And I think this is the real key thing about beekeeping is you have the conventional beekeeping where it's all about the honey and it's all about control and a lot of chemical use. So it's all based on, you know, germ theory. And then you have the real natural beekeepers who don't take any honey and are really honouring and worshipping the bees. And there seemed to be a middle ground because we are all connected. And I feel, we, you know, the bees are producing honey as our medicine. They're, produ- they're teaching us. So we need to connect. So we have so much to learn from the bees. So to get back to your, to your journey, because there's so much to talk about with the bees alone, but you did manage to heal yourself. And it was a combination of, so you say working with the bees and, and then herbs as well? You yeah. Herbs. So after six years, I got the diagnosis of Ehlers-Danlos and it's a genetic condition. So I was told I wouldn't walk again. Um, I wouldn't work again. They were really sorry. Um, and they could offer me antidepressants and painkillers. And so I did have a period of grief. I mean, I'd spent two years researching Ehlers-Danlos. So I was pretty sure that that, you know, I was ready for that because the symptoms I was experienced were, were common with Ellis Danlos. But it's still a shock when somebody tells you, and especially after six years of almost having to justify that you are really ill because nothing is showing up. So that that was tough. And But then I'd already made the decision before I had the actual con- confirmation of the diagnosis that I'd become a patient of Lucy Jones, who runs Mirobolan Clinic, And she's um, a medical herbalist, but she's also trained in Tibetan medicine. And she moved into Castle Carey whilst I was ill. She was a Dorset practitioner and then moved so I could actually be a patient. And within eight months, she had me out of the wheelchair. I didn't know it was Lucy because I've been to Lucy. In fact, I I must do a podcast with Lucy. She is so knowledgeable about herbs and Tibetan medicine and and the oh, natural ways I should have known it was yeah she, she's very special and she's so generous with her knowledge and yes. wisdom and yes. that's how I found her was from laying in bed on Twitter and Instagram and she was just sharing all this wisdom about plants and amazingly moves to your town from anywhere in the world I know I just couldn't believe it because there was no way I could have been transported to a clinic in Dorset so it was meant to be and she also taught me a lot about healing and letting go of the past and the the spiritual sides of healing so um my body was in a constant state of fight or flight you know, I I would be very easily triggered. And she taught me to change my perception of threats. So not to take things personally. And to, when you change your perception of a threat, you can deal with it a lot better and just really being very present. So after the eight months, I was at the wheelchair. I didn't need carers all the time. I could cook meals for my boys. And I was just thinking, wow, this is amazing. I, you know, I feel amazing. And I was, I was not expecting to work. I was not expecting to, you know, to do anything like that. And luckily, Greg had a, had a good job. So there wasn't that pressure. And we'd adapted, you know, when you have seven years of having not had a business, you just adapt. So that, that was all good. And then after a couple of months of not taking anything, my mum 
introduced me to plant-based minerals. And I didn't know anything about minerals. I knew we needed them, but I didn't know. I didn't know about them. But there were two things that I remember from being a teenager that had stuck in my mind. And the first one, I remember hearing or reading about Himalayan monks who were living extraordinarily long lives from drinking glacier milk. And the glacier milk was rich in minerals. So that was one thing that just stuck in my head. Literally milk made from ice glaciers. Is that yeah, what it was? I mean, the water that comes Incredible. off glaciers is milky, you know, looks yes. thick and, and white. And so they call it glacier milk because it Amazing. looks like that. So that had just sat in my head and floated around for, you know, 30 odd years. And then the other thing I remember was as a teenager, because I, I grew up in Dorset, Somerset, um, we have all the festivals. And so one of the jobs that a lot of my friends did was work for mobile toilet companies. Um, I, I had my, my, my levels and I wasn't, I wasn't going to go and do that. I found other jobs to do, but, um, but something that I was told by more than one person was that one of the problems these companies had was disposing of all the vitamin and mineral pills that went straight through people's bodies. And so they had these mountains of these supplements. So I'd always been very sceptical of supplements. Um, and I, I remember saying, well, how do you know they're vitamins or minerals? And they said, they've still got the brand names on them. So that was another thing that was floating around in my head. So when my mum said, oh, there's these mineral um, tablets, or your, you know, mineral supplements, you should give them a try. And I was really sceptical. But I had noticed my mum had been taking them and she's 21 years older than me. And I noticed that her thinking had become sharper and and she was more energetic and she felt healthier. So I thought, well, I'm, you know, I've not taken anything for a few months, so I'll give them a shot. And a week after taking them, I went to meet the um, the owner of the company who's doing a talk in Glastonbury. And I learned so much about minerals. And then I realized that going to that talk, I had driven there in an evening, whereas I hadn't driven much at all. And I certainly wasn't going out in the evenings. I'd attended a two hour meeting then I drove back and my eldest son came with me just to make sure I wasn't getting involved in some kind of dodgy scam, you know. And we both talked nonstop on the way back. And then I got home, I went on my computer and I just signed up. I thought, wow, this is amazing. And these minerals are from a glacier melt in Utah. And when the glacier melts, you have this layer of rich plant-based minerals that become a soil. So the difference between a metallic mineral and a plant-based is that under the soil, we have metals. So if you think of iron, it's a metal. And plants send their tap roots down. They break down these metals. They process them. They sort of digest them. And if we eat those plants, we get those minerals in a digestible form. And the minerals are no longer in our agricultural soil. So we are between 75 and 95% deficient of minerals in our soils. So it's a real crisis point. And that made me realize that if we're not getting minerals in our food, the bees aren't getting it in the nectar. So it was this real like, oh my goodness me, what are we doing with the whole planet? But then also it's understanding how we absorb them. And there was... um a uh, professor, uh, Dr. Linus Pauling, he got a Nobel Prize for his work on minerals. And he claims that every disease known to man comes down to a mineral deficiency. So it just made sense. So within a week, I was more energetic. Within three weeks, I didn't need my walking sticks. I'd gone to London with my other son. He was doing work experience. And the idea was we'd have this mother-son time. We'd stay in the same hotel. He'd do his work experience in the day. And then in the evenings, we'd go and eat together. And when I'd gone two years previously with my other son, I was just in the wheelchair. So I'd be in bed all day in the hotel and then we'd go out in the evenings. This time I thought, oh, wow, we'll be able to go out with my sticks. But what happened was I couldn't stay in bed all day because I was in London. I hadn't been there for ages. It was beautiful, sunny weather. There's a bus stop outside. So I'd get on the bus and go and do things and, and meet people. And then because it was so hot, I'd get off the bus. And because I had years before I used to go to London a lot, I love London. I walked everywhere. So I got quite a good knowledge of the geography of London. So we'd be sat in this hot, sweaty bus and I'd get off the bus because I'd think we're not going anywhere. And I'd walk. And then I think, oh, my goodness me, I've just walked a mile. I've just walked two miles. And then when you've been given a lifetime disability diagnosis, 
it does mess with your head a bit because you're like, you have the guilt. You're like, well, I should be ill because I'm classified as ill, even though I was terrible. You know, getting benefits. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it is awful. And there isn't this social acceptance of convalescence. You know, you're either ill or you're back full on. There isn't this allowance to to readjust and find out who you are and then start contributing. So it, that was really tricky. And I think it shows how much of illness and well-being is in your head and how you have to deal with those demons. And how so many people, to get back to the menopause, are told how ill they are and that they need medication when, in fact, it's just living a healthier life. Well, it's not just the menopause, it's in every every area of illness. Well, exactly. I mean, you know, being ill, it taught me to not have any chemicals of any sort on or in my body. So I am completely natural. I am clean, you know, I feel clean. And it's having that control. So knowing exactly what I put into my body. Do you still take the plant minerals? I do. I do. Although, interestingly, I am having not taken anything else for six years. I met somebody um, through a, a business group who is actually, he he's healed from Crohn's disease, which is a, a really serious um, digestive problem. And because I, I have a wheat sensitivity, and then there was a couple of the little things, you know, sort of hanging on from my Ehlers-Danlos. So I have cysts and I have, I have sort of gum issues. And so I knew that there was something, I wasn't 100%. I know I'm pretty good for health, but I knew there was a few things missing. So anyway, I've started taking, it's, it's a three to four months detox with these herbal powders. It's called um, Quenda. And it's it's quite heavy duty, actually. You know, it shakes. I don't like shakes. And you have this shake of this herbs and it's quite bitter. And I've been on that now for six weeks. But since I've been on that, I am forgetting to take my minerals some days. And I think that's very interesting that if you need a medicine, your body reminds you you need it. If you don't, it doesn't ask for it. So these mineral, these um, herbs are all mid-rich, you know, and they're organic. So yeah, but generally I would not go anywhere without taking my minerals because I do feel that they are that background support that I need, you know, the spark plugs of life. Yes. And I think um, perhaps, I'm sure people will write in when they listen to this and want the information of how to get hold of the plant minerals and the quendo, which you gave me the details of last week. And it's on my list that I'm writing off for that myself. Because it's all about having clean gut and gut health, which is, as we know, the most important thing of all, really, when it comes to our health. Well, it is. It is. And it takes a long time. We forget this. It takes a very long time to get really sick. You don't get really sick overnight. Your body is giving you messages all the time. And in the same way, to get well once you've got really sick takes time. There, There isn't a quick fix. And perhaps the minerals, if I had taken them day one of my seven years, they might not have had such an impact. But because I'd spent seven years really taking care of my body, really resting, that they were, you know, they were exactly what I needed at that time. was ready, ready for them. That's yeah. an extraordinary story for that alone. Then having got yourself better, you decided not to go back into art. You went into bees. How did that happen? Again, I think it's the words. When I was ill, so many people as well as myself were grieving for me not painting. And the the phrase that kept coming back is, will you go back to painting? Can I go back to painting? But it was that going back. And when I used to paint, I always had a whole stream of paintings yet to be downloaded. You know, there was always these images in my head that just needed me to be in the studio and I could download them. And when I started getting ill, because I couldn't speak and I couldn't be with people, I needed a voice and I couldn't paint. You know, I, I, I had no energy for that. So what I wanted to do was write. And so writing was that first thing. So I started a blog when I was ill, just just able. And I think when you're in a darkened room and you're talking to yourself, you can have an openness and honesty when you talk to the internet because you feel like nobody's listening, so it doesn't matter. So I wrote about how I felt about suicide. You know, there were times where I was so desperately ill and so disparate, you know, so desperate that it was, gosh, how could I do it? How could I end my life? And then what would the consequences be? And it, it was interesting because obviously your children keep you going or you hope they keep you going. And there was that little glimmer of hope. There was this vision of me being 98, walking along a Hebridean beach. 
that would come into my head. So I knew that in my 40s, you know, I, this was my time, but in my 90s, I would be active again. So I just had to, you know, fill that gap. And, but writing about grief of losing who you were, writing about grief of having poor health and the fears of losing your career, losing, you know, losing a marriage, losing children, you know, there'd been so much loss in my life that I had to come to terms with that. And I think being still, whether it's through meditation or illness, enables you to process the grievances we have, which with modern society, we suppress and carry on. It's like, okay, stiff up a lip, you know. And, I, and, and very ironically, it is about just being, you know, it's all about the bee. It is. It is. I mean, just with the word. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I never intended... I mean, from being ill, I didn't have an intention of being or doing anything. I was so grateful for every day. I was so grateful I could make my own cup of tea and I could cook a meal for my kids or I could, you know, drive to the seaside and, and go for a walk. I mean, they were the things that I was really, really grateful for. So my husband had had a hobby of making cider and it had sort of encroached from the garage into our living room. And he was helping the local community. They do an apple day in October and he volunteered to sort of do the apple pressing. So which meant he would have even more apple juice because he was pressing his own apples as well. So I said, well, if you're going to do that, I might as well come with you and have a little table and sell the apple juice that you've made. So I did that. And then they said, well, why don't you come and do the market every week? So I started doing Castle Kerry Market every week. And having had a gallery in Kerry and lived here for like 30 odd years. I knew everybody. Everybody knew me. They'd seen me, you know, as a young businesswoman. They saw me get married the first time. They saw me have kids, saw me be a single mum, then saw me around in a wheelchair and then saw me healthy. So there there was tremendous support from the community. And interest, I'm sure. Yes. Well, yes. So everyone's like, what are you on? What what <laughs> was it? And of course, everyone's looking for that, you know, magic hill. So, um, and Lucy was always very good because she was saying, no, I'm not healing you. You have to heal yourself. And that is a key thing is we have to take responsibility for our own health and well-being. And you can have people who guide you. And I can say, yeah, the minerals, they work great for me or the, the quenda is working wonders for me. But I don't know how they're going to react to other people. And we've got so used to handing over responsibility for our health and well-being and thinking that other people will fix us or other people will rescue us. And I really think the big lesson about humanity from the past two years is that there are no knights in shining armour. We have to rescue ourselves and we have to become sovereign in ourselves of knowing how we want to live and what we want to contribute to the world to create the world that will make us happy and healthy and it, that's a big step for a lot of people it is and uh, do you think for women it's harder do you think that it, uh, um you know as, as you know i do that women moving into this new future this role it is there for us to step into as leaders in communities alongside men, but to step into our own power is part of what we need to do now because we're certainly not going to get the support and the help and all the things that we've been brought up to expect from the so-called leaders that we have, the, the politicians and the big businesses and the media and so on and, and the medical profession to a degree. You know, it is about us learning our own power, sometimes in the most ancient ways. I mean, you've talked about storytelling when you were doing your blogs. You're, you're talking about medicine woman, which you've learned to be your own medicine woman, as you know, all the different power of seven archetypes that I work with. And the seed sower, sort of putting the seeds of your new life down. I mean, you really do represent and the alchemist, which is the magic of changing everything around. You, you've, you've lived all those seven archetypes that I work with many times. And do you agree? I think it's, you know, women now, it is our time now. Absolutely. I, I think it is. And I, I think it's, it's the post menopause, you know, it empowers you. It is, isn't it? You know, because you've gone through so much and you have gained wisdom. And by the time you get to your fifties, you know, I'm 53 now and you stop caring what other people think because you're on a bigger mission. There's more important things than 
do I look fat in this? Or, you know, do they yes. like me? Do they not like me? Yeah, I, I wrote the Sue handbook about when I was 53, postmenopause. In oh, fact, I just realised wow. you said that. But oh, my gosh. It's funny. It, it is. It's that is that perimenopause, menopause, postmenopause time when we move into our power and why we're hearing so many women now, public figures, talking about the menopause openly, which didn't happen when I was going through it 20-odd years ago because so many younger women with high profiles have now suddenly got to that point and and it's so true what you say is because it's a time of empowered em, oh, i always find empowerment as a funny word even though i use it a lot but it is being empowered through and post menopause well yeah We've being happy in your own skin and yes. in your own body being really happy and when you can find that happiness it radiates out from you and then it inspires other people I mean, I'm lucky. I've always been a strong-willed person. I've always been independent. I've had supportive family. So, you know, I I can't speak for those who have been more disadvantaged than yes. me and, and don't have that voice. But we're there to support those, aren't we? That's our role. That's exactly what we have to do. I'm working on a project now. Anyway, back to Castle Kerry Market. <laughs> and there you were, selling, getting better, or got better, really, and selling Greg's uh, excess apple juice and, and what happened? Because I know then an extraordinary thing happened, is it? as it seems to happen to you, nothing by halves. <laughs> so yeah, I was selling his apple juice. I had herbal teas, I had the minerals and I had some products from the hive and it really was a pop-up parlor. So every week I'd go there and I'd just be hugging all day and I wasn't there for the money, but earning money became easier, you know, because there wasn't that desperate hunger or need that I had when I was younger, where I'd overstretched myself and had a massive property and lots of wages to pay. You know, suddenly when you're in the flow, everything does get easier. And this gentleman came up to my stand who wanted to buy some honey. And I didn't have a lot of honey because I was saving it for the bees. So I was quite, it was an under the counter product, you know, and I had key people who I knew really appreciated it. So I would save jars for them. And this chap, he just said, oh, do you have any honey? And I was like, mm, well, yes, but where do you live? Because I treat it as medicine and it really is for local people. And, um, you know, I, I need to know who you are, basically. And because I said, oh, yeah, I haven't seen you around for a while. And I know everybody here and I haven't seen you. And he said, oh, well, I live in Hadspen, which is a little village. And I was like, oh, that's a nice village. I've got friends in Hadspen. So my head was going, so which house would he be in then? You know, because there's only about 10 houses in Hadspen. And then he said, um, the house, Hadspen house. And then I realized he was the one who'd bought the big local estate where nobody knew what was going on. There was all this intrigue and mystery. And there was rumors that they were going to plant or, or lay out a garden that would be open to the public. So obviously I was curious. So I started chatting to him and then he said, I've planted an orchard, which was massive understatement. It's huge orchard that we could all see from the main road. And um, they've actually planted 60,000 trees across the estate, which is amazing. You know, I'm really proud to be associated with that, you know. Um, so he said, oh, I've got planted this orchard and I'm interested in, in honeybees because I love honey. So... He said, would you come around and have a look? So I was like, well, yes, you know, of course I will. So when I got home, I said to Greg, God, you wouldn't believe who I met today. And I was thinking, how do you follow up, you know, a lead like that? He'd given me his business card and it was like, oh, how do you follow up? Now I know who he is and I don't want to sound like I'm groveling. And, you know, everybody, when something or someone like him moves into an area and is doing a big project, everybody's wanting a bit of it. And I didn't, you know, I was thinking, oh, he's going to want, you know, beehives and lots of honey. And um, by the time I got home, told Greg, opened up my laptop and um, he'd already emailed me and said, would you come over on Monday next week? So I was like, well, yeah, of course. So I went up there and I met the head gardener, Tia, at the time and um, Katie, who's the estate architect. And um, they took me on a walk around the estate and they were telling me what they were doing and of course it was a massive building society site and there was mud everywhere and but there's this amazing woodland that is still untouched and um and we're walking around and during the walk I actually spotted a wild colony of bees in an ash tree really high up so that was amazing because it was February which if you have a warm, sunny February day, it's the perfect time to look for wild colonies of bees. 
And wild colonies of bees are said to be, you know, some conventional beekeepers say they're rubbish, they don't exist because they can't survive without men putting chemicals inside the hives and managing them. And so for me to see this wild colony of bees was so amazing for me, but also to them, it was like, oh, she knows what she's doing. She, you know, she could spot wild bees. So it was, it was amazing. So after this meeting, they just said, well, let us know what do you think we could do with bees on this estate with what we're planning to do. And the thing that particularly interested me was the emphasis on storytelling at what is now the Newt, the Newt in Somerset. It was then Emily Estate. And I love public speaking. When I was an artist, I used to speak. I used to train artists how to earn a living as an artist. I used to share my story. I used to paint live on stage. I loved it. absolutely loved it. And I think public speaking and, and sharing stories is, is, you know, my gift. So I was like, mm, well, I'd really like to be doing that. I'd like to be involved with that. So they said, well, let us know what you think we could do with bees. So I went away and really had to think hard because part of me was thinking their expectation is that I'd say, okay, you're in a state of this size. We could have a hundred or so beehives and you'd have this many tons of honey, you know, and this is how we'll do it. And this is how much it will cost. But that was completely against all my instincts, all my, my um, ethos with beekeeping. So I thought, well, what have I got to lose? You know, I've still got my pop-up pooler once a week, you know, I'm happy. So I wrote a 26-page document on what I would do with bees if it was my estate and if money was no object. I just thought, you know, in my heart, I'm an entrepreneur. And if this was an opportunity, then I'm not going to miss it. So I wrote all this stuff that I thought I'd do and how we could do it. And I I spoke to different beekeeping consultants and I, I then did a budget of how much it would cost and, you know, for all the assessment. Really, you know. <laughs> it, it was a it was a huge stretch for me and during that writing it took me about three weeks to do it and during that I had a bit of a health relapse and again it's so important to be surrounded by by other women and like-minded women and I had joined a women's networking business group called women mean Biz um yeah women mean business around the bath area and um and, and it really helped me sort of form who I was. And I'd already come up with Paula Carnell creating a buzz about health because I felt there was this connection between bees and health. So I really was a very small business, but I was doing all that work on myself and on my business. And um, I had a relapse in health. And of course, when you've been given a diagnosis like that, you're every day you're thinking, is today the last day? Or oh, I was every day, you know, is, is this the last day I'm going to be well? Am I going to be ill again? And so you start looking for any signs and I really did have a relapse. I really had no energy and I was I was really struggling. And I thought, how could I take on an opportunity like this if I've got no energy, if I can't fulfill it? You know, I'm on my own and, and how would I do that? And I met up with a, a wonderful woman called Maria who was um, part of this group. And we met for coffee and, or tea, don't drink coffee, um, for tea in Castle Carey. And I was explaining all this to her and saying what my fears were and, and then and saying how I want to put all my energy into this new project, but I've, I've, I want to put my energy into my kids and da And she is an NLP expert, you know, neuro linguistic programmer. So she was very conscious of the power of your words. And she said, do you realize how many times you're saying you're going to put all your energy into this or all your energy into that? And if you do that, you won't have energy for yourself. And just as she said that, it was like this huge weight came off my shoulders and I shook off tons, you know, <laughs> tons of emotional baggage. And I realized that I could have as much energy as I wanted to do what I want to do. And so then I submitted this document and pretty quick, I, it was within a week, I had an email back going, wonderful, we love it. Will you do it? So then that was when I started at, at the Newton Somerset. So it was five years ago in May 2017. And I've been given a free reign to do what I wanted to do. And one of the most, my proudest thing is I really wanted to have a building that people would enter and see the world from the bee's perspective. Now, my original plan was like a wooden heart or like a big straw skep. You know, it, it was not on the same budget that 
that has since evolved. And last year, the Byzantium opened, and that's, you know, my, it's not my building and I don't claim to it. It was a big team that put it together, but it shows how my idea could be evolved with an amazing group of people. Do you know, I've not seen the Byzantium because oh. I've been to the nude. I need to make an appointment with you to go and have a look around myself with the Byzantium and oh, see what absolutely. you've done there. It's but just, look. you walk in and there's these big walls out of honeycomb, but it's not done in a sort of naff yeah. tweed way. And then in the walls, which are inspired from my trips to Bhutan, we've actually got bees living in the walls, but in different types Amazing. of hives. And, you, and people come from all around the world now to see it. Yeah, we do. And what I love about the new is they don't make a big song and dance when they open something. And this is why so many people still haven't found it. It's just tucked away in the woods with this apiary. And there's been no formal opening, no big launch, but people just stumble across it. I need to go and stumble. I'm going to ask your help with that one. And and of course, the new now is getting thousands of visitors, as I say, from all around the world, as well as the UK. And and daily, daily, incredible success. But of course, you have your own work with the newt and your own work outside the newt because you've been developing your, you've written some books about bees that uh, I sell here at Seed, in fact, and you've started creating your own honey. Do you want to talk about your own work, what you're doing? Well, yes. I think having always been self-employed, there was no way I was ever going to be employed. And so I was very lucky to write my own terms for the newt. And because we didn't open to the public for two years, I was able, you know, I do more work with bees in the summer and then less in the winter. So the winter months, I would invest, you know, what I was earning from the newt to travel and to learn more about bees because I knew that by the time we opened in 2019, I had to be a bee expert. And what we were doing at the newt was implementing what I was doing personally with my bees. So there's no chemicals. I had this really strong feeling that we shouldn't be buying in bees. So, um, conventionally a project like the newt you would buy 100 beehives you then buy 100 packets of bees but that really upsets the natural native bee species all the solitary and the bumblebees the whole ecology yes yeah and there's so little work on auditing the native bee species before honeybees are brought in so by traveling to oman and bhutan and and america and canada and um or indian ocean i started to see the damage that honeybees are doing, or not honeybees, but humans taking honeybees wherever they want honey, not really understanding the the really fine balance of nature. And we've lost 50 species of solitary and bumblebees in the UK. And they're just being starved out because we keep breeding more and more honeybees. So people sort of blend the image of a bee in with a wasp and a bumblebee. You know, they all look the same and they become this one thing that you see on on everything but actually they're very different and it's the other bees that are the pollinators and it's the honeybee that makes the honey so i then evolved my own business where i'd be doing consulting for other companies so this is even before the new opened i was able to do some work with honey producers connecting them with with people that want to buy really good honey because the the quality of your honey is so important and as Lucy had helped heal me. I started to study to be a medical herbalist. So I'm six years into my training. And so this whole connection between the medicinal plants that the bees forage on to make honey, again, I was like, wow, honey is medicine. And in the Quran, there's a whole chapter called the bee where God has given his wisdom to the bee to share with humanity. And then the Buddhist monks believe the highest level of reincarnation is a bee. So suddenly there's this whole realm of spirituality that comes with the bees and the bees are connecting the herbs, the minerals in the soil. And instead of me having these three sort of aspects of my life, you know, sort of recommending minerals because they help me, studying to be a medical herbalist and then being bee, a beekeeper, a bee consultant, suddenly they all were connected by the bees. So my my business, you know, creating a buzz about health, it's, it just sums up. It's a way of explaining that what is killing the bees is our environment. And we're sharing that environment with the bees. So the bees are the canaries in the coal mine. And so if it's killing the bees, it's got to be killing us as well. But to 
go around and tell people you got to stop eating sugar, you should be resting more, you should be doing this. People are like, oh, no, no, you know, I don't want to do that. But if you explain the impact that our behaviours and our environment are doing to the bees, people seem to care more about the bees than they do themselves. But it helps join those dots. You know, if you're poisoning fruit trees that you need the bees to pollinate and the bees are dying when they pollinate that, what's going to happen if you eat that fruit? You know, it's it's not rocket science to me. So I feel really gifted that I've been able to work all around the world on some really exciting projects. And I suppose the key thing is that storytelling. It's helping the honey producers share the story of what is magic about their honey, what is magic about the plants that their bees feed on, how in Madagascar they're planting trees and they save the ancient trees. They guard their trees with rifles because they know that an ancient tree has so much food on it for bees. If it's covered with flowers, it can have an acre's worth of flowers on on a single tree. So I love that helping them share their story because more often than not, they're beekeepers. They're they're focusing on the practicalities of keeping their bees alive and, and producing honey. And they are missing what the public need to understand about why their honey is so special. And we have this great thing about eating local and buying local, but we wouldn't eat local coffee or drink local coffee or we wouldn't have local lemons. And we are a global community and we need to trade with each other for different things. And if you have Nyuli honey that you can only get from Madagascar and it's a really highly medicinal honey, then we should be trading it with our dandelion honey that perhaps they can't have there. You know, it is understanding that we are networks of local communities and humanity is always traded and we need to be trading, but we need to keep what is special about what we do in our area. This is, it's such important work that you're doing. And in a way, I feel it's almost the start of something. You know, you've been working for years to get to the point you're at and to get this information out there. I can see lots of women wanting to know more. And are you running workshops from your, from your plates? Can, yes. how do people get in touch? Okay. What can they do to be part of what you're doing? I know there's going to be an enormous, I would hope there's going to be an enormous amount of interest in following up what you've been talking about. Well, I have two books, Artist to Bees, which shares my story of how I, I got into beekeeping and some of the trips I've done and learning to be a honey sommelier. Then I wrote a book, Bees in Bhutan. I've yes. got two more books coming out this year. One is This is Honey, where I share 50 honeys that are my favourite out of my massive collection. Um, but it's sharing the stories of the plants and the beekeepers for those honeys. Then my other book, which I'm I'm working on, and, and I tend to do two at a time. The other two were written more or less at the same time as well, is creating a buzz about health because I realise now that what I've learned about health, there are tips and and you know that needs to be shared. Yeah, just you know, the basics because I forget I've been so long on my journey that I forget what I didn't know before. And so I will be covering the basics. And you bring your art. This is again where you bring your art back into your books, which is perfect, really. Do your illustration. Yeah, because I don't mind illustrating. So we have have the first two books here at the seed store. So we'll make sure people know how to get those. And then I I just think that there's so many people that would love to do, I I don't even know if you do them, a live workshop or retreat or something where they can come and learn. You've got, the thing is, you're so busy. That's the point. You're so busy. Well, I do have, I have an online course because I've, and I set that up in 2019. So it was lucky. It was just in time for the, great lockdowns. Um, And so I've taught over 60 people online now around the world with my naturopathic beekeeping methods, but we're just changing it to kinder keeping because there was an article written about me in BQ magazine and they just said, you know, I'm championing this, this championing this new method of beekeeping. And they just said, you know, kinder keeping. So I said, can I use that? That's exactly what we're doing. So I have an online course, Kind of Keeping. I also have free challenges. There's videos on YouTube. I'm on Instagram. That's probably my most active place. So you can see me on Instagram actually doing these um, live sessions on beekeeping. So I have the course. And this summer with my workshop, and I now have a, an apiary within walking distance of my workshop. So I will be doing some day um, sort of... Day workshops, and I'd love to do one for a start. Yeah. 
it's just brilliant, absolutely brilliant, your work. And you'll be here live. I'm, first time I've ever done that for World Bee Day on the 20th. We are going to be here live at the, at our women's gathering at the Seed Cafe, as well as this podcast going out to all the people that don't live around Wincanton and aren't lucky enough to come and hear you in person. You are an inspiration and it just grows and it just, it's such important work. I can't even emphasize enough how important I think it is. So thank you so much for taking the time today to be part of this podcast. And I'll be seeing you on World Bee Day itself. And um, yeah, my mind is just spinning. There is so much to be taught to others and so much need and so much hunger, really, uh, not only to have the best honey in the world, but also to know how to heal ourselves as you've done so. In so many ways, big, big role for you. It's a big role for you, Paula. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Have a wonderful rest of the day and I'll see you soon. All right, thank you so much. My seed exercise this week is all about the bees, of course. The bees have always been prominent in ancient goddess culture. So why not do a bit of research yourself, whether it's on the ancient ways of bees or natural beekeeping or just do a little bit of research on the importance of good honey and what it does for our well-being. And just be. Thank you so much for listening and taking part. I'll be back with a new episode in the next few weeks, and I do hope you'll join me again. If you like what you hear and want to learn more practical methods to help you plant the seeds in your own empowerment journey, then please subscribe to this podcast rate it and review it. Also, why not join us on our Seed Network if you haven't already and together with thousands of like-minded women, you'll make friends, promote your business and share your stories. Visit seednetworks.com and find out more. And until then, I'll see you next time on Frankly Speaking with Lynn Franks and Friends.